Amen. Thank you, Toman Trio. Let's take our Bibles this morning and turn to John chapter 14. What a wonderful song, what wonderful uh, words, truth. hope you know the truth and you love the truth. What wonderful truth this morning we've just heard in song. John chapter 14 is where we're at in our studies. We go through the gospel according to John. And uh, you remember now here as we're in chapter 14, just beginning it this morning, from chapter 13 all the way through chapter 17 in the gospel according to John, it covers only a three-hour period of time. Uh, from the time period between uh, after the Lord's Supper, Jesus is with his disciples, until the time when Judas Iscariot betrays him with a kiss. It's about a three-hour window, a three-hour period of time. And uh, in our Bibles, we have many of Jesus' words during that three-hour period of time recorded for us. And if you've never read them, I hope uh, don't hold back from reading them, waiting for us to get there. Uh, it's only a, a few chapters, chapters 13 through chapter 17. Uh, chapter 17 is really a prayer. That would be the Lord's Prayer. It's not the one we think of as the Lord's Prayer. Um, but it really is the Lord's Prayer. Jesus praying to his Father. He, you, if you read those words in chapter 17, you'll find that he's praying for his disciples, the men that were with him, who loved him, that he was about to leave. Um, but also praying uh, that God's will would be done for all of his disciples, praying for you and for me. And uh, if you want to read how Jesus prayed for you, read John chapter 17. and You'll find that out. Really is amazing, these words that we're looking at. And we're in chapter 14. And you remember, it's the night um, before um, he's to be crucified. The disciples still do not see that. Um, Judas, by this point, has left them. And now Jesus is just talking to his true followers, um, those who are genuinely followers of him. So there's only 11 men there with him. He's speaking to them. Uh, he's comforting them. They were struggling. They were grieved. And, uh, and Jesus Christ was encouraging their hearts uh, during this time. I want to read to you from our hymnal. Um, Mrs. Pagan played it um, for an offertory this, this morning. Uh, she played hymn number 601, Finally Home. Some of you might have it memorized. Most of us, I don't think we do. Um, Jesus, as he's speaking to his disciples, he's telling them, I'm going to leave you. Uh, he knew that he was going to die. And death in the Bible is um, separation. And many of us in this room have lost loved ones in that sense that we've been separated from them. Um, moms and dads, grandparents, children. Um, and saying goodbye to them is not an easy thing by any means. Friends, um, I don't know what God will do with Mr. Wirtz. I don't know God's timetable for him. Uh, yesterday, he asked me, why doesn't the Lord just take me home? I'm ready. And um, this hymn, I think, is powerful, and I think it, I think it grabs a hold of, at least in part, what the disciples were going to endure. It says this, when engulfed by the terror of tempestuous sea, sometimes life is like that, unknown waves before you roll. 
At the end of doubt and peril is eternity, though fear and conflict seize your soul. But just think of stepping on shore and finding it heaven, of touching a hand and finding it God's, of breathing new air and finding it celestial, of waking up in glory and finding it home. Second verse in the last says, says this, When surrounded by the blackness of the darkest night, oh, how lonely death can be. At the end of this long tunnel is a shining light where death is swallowed up in victory. And then the chorus again, but just think of stepping on shore and finding it heaven, of touching a hand and finding it God's, of breathing new air and finding it celestial, of waking up in glory and finding it home. I hope that you know the Lord Jesus Christ as your personal Savior. When I was with Mr. Wirtz yesterday, I quoted for him the passage I'm going to preach to you this morning. And it was I suppose it was just really on my heart as I've been reviewing and studying this week. It's a wonderful passage. Many of you know it. Some of you may have never heard it before. But Jesus was preparing his disciples for separation. He was preparing them for something that many of us have have endured when we say goodbye to someone that we love with all of our hearts and life will never quite be the same again because there's going to be separation. Let's look at the passage, John chapter 14, and I'll read beginning in verse number one. This is what I quoted to Mr. Wirtz yesterday. Let not your heart be troubled. Ye believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there ye may be also. And whither I go ye know, and the way ye know. Thomas saith unto him, Lord, we know not whither thou goest, and how can we know the way? Jesus saith unto him, I am the way, the truth, the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I pray that you'd bless your word in our hearts. We're beginning a new year, as we have so many times before. And every time we begin a new year, we don't know what the year is going to bring. We have plans, Lord. We have ideas, we have hopes and dreams, we have ambitions, uh, Lord, but we really don't know what the next year is going to bring. Father, I'm thankful that you, by your Son, has gone before us to prepare a place for us. I'm thankful that this life is not all there is, that there is life for all of eternity. There's life in your Son, Jesus Christ. And Lord, I'm thankful that so many in this room have that life. Father, I pray that you'd comfort our hearts this morning, and I pray for some, Lord, whose hearts are not comforted by these truths. Lord, I pray that you would draw them to yourself. I pray that they might be saved soon. I pray that they might have life soon. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, within hours of Jesus speaking these words, and you could tell as we read Thomas is mentioned here. Thomas uh, really kind of rebukes the Lord, uh, disagrees with him at the very least. Jesus had throughout the gospel, according to John, 
Uh, he had told them many things, that he was the way, that he was the door, that he was the bread of life, uh, that he was uh, that well of water springing up, that if you drank of him, that if you believed upon him, that if you uh, partook of him, that you would have everlasting life. And he had told them over and over again, you need to believe, you need to trust me. And yet here we are, the night he is about to be betrayed, he's going to be dead within 24 hours. He's going to be hanging on a cross, buried in a tomb, I should even say within 24 hours of making these statements. And Thomas is still disagreeing with them. We don't know where you're going. We don't know how to get to where you're going. And there's still this disagreement. And and I have to tell you, I think Thomas was, and I'm glad he asked these, this question, um, because it's an excellent question with a wonderful answer. But Thomas and the disciples were emotionally coming apart. Everything was falling apart that they had thought was going to take place. And so Christ, as he's facing death, he teaches his disciples, he draws their attention to four realities when it comes to death. And, and I hope you've considered it. Um, sometimes when I'll teach or preach at a funeral service, I will remind the group of people that are there, people who are mourning, who have lost someone they love, I'll remind them of a passage of scripture in the Song of Solomon, where Solomon writes, or in Ecclesiastes, where he says that it is better to go into the house of mourning than to go into the house of feasting, for that is the end of all men, he says, and the living will lay it to their heart, or will take it to their heart. They'll, he actually says it's better to go to a funeral than it is to a wedding. None of us here would agree with that. But he tells us why it's better, because when we go to a wedding or a party, all we're thinking about is the here and now, the temporal. It's so exciting. Doesn't she look so beautiful? Isn't he so handsome? Aren't they a wonderful couple? What a wonderful service. Um, and on and on. We're thinking, isn't this good food? Or it's not such good food. What a mess. I hope they're going to make it. You know, we think all kinds of things. But we're thinking in the very temporal, the immediate. And Jesus, or, or, or Solomon, the wisest man who ever lived, says it's better to go to a funeral because... When you go to a funeral, you actually think about things that are eternal. You think about how you're living your life. You think of what kind of a trajectory you're on. You, you, you're, you question, am I believing the right things? And Jesus, as he's preparing for death and he's trying to comfort his disciples, they're not getting it. They're, they're frustrated. He teaches them these four realities about uh, that he wanted his disciples to consider. And I want to give them to you this morning from the passage. First of all, the first reality Jesus draws their attention to is that death is real. Death is real, and we must not deny it. Look at verse number one. He says, let not your heart be troubled. That's an amazing statement. And by the way, you will find no other comfort ultimately, for your grief than from the word of God and from the Lord Jesus Christ. I want to tell you that. Some of us avoid these truths to avoid the grief. The word of God is what gives the comfort. He says, let not your heart be troubled. He says, ye believe in God, 
You believe in God, don't you? To his disciples. He says, believe also in me. You believe in God. You believe in Jehovah. Jesus looks at these men. He says, you need to trust me. You need to believe in me. Now look again at the first statement. He says, let not your heart be troubled. Why were their hearts troubled? Well, the whole reason for the conversation was because there was going to be separation. Jesus knew this. The disciples weren't following. Jesus knew it. There was going to be separation because there was going to be death. He was going to die. And the Bible tells us that every person has an appointment with death. Mr. Wirtz has lived uh, over 80 years. Many of you in this room have lived over 80 years. Some 70. Lived a good, long life. Some in your 60s. Some of you are as old as Tim Maury. You're 50. And there are those of us who are young. In our 40s. Anyway, and I'll just lump all the 40-year-olds in with everyone else because that's how youth is. 20s, 30s, 40s, what's the difference? Not 50. But the Bible tells us that everyone has an appointment with death. We we, We tend to think, you know, as a person gets older, they've lived their life, they've enjoyed life, they've gone, they've suffered at times, but they've lived life, they've to the fullest, and and so for them to pass away, there is still is grief, there's still is separation, but they've lived. But the reality is death is not confined to 80-year-olds or 90-year-olds or 70-year-olds or 60-year-olds, right? I mean, we can go right on down the line. I can remember as a 20-year-old, a friend of mine, Matt Turnbow, and uh, his parents were missionaries to Siberia at the time, and Matt was living in the United States, and uh, he was working a job, and, and I was in college in Wisconsin at the time, and uh, got word that Matt Turnbow had been had crossed the center center line on one of the M roads. I don't know if it was M13, which one it was on, but he crossed the center line on the way to work that morning, or the SUV that hit him crossed the center line. They collided head on. And Matt Turnbow's life ended at 20 years of age or so, 19. Um, We know of people who have died before that age. And again, we enter this year, and I'm not trying to be doom and gloom. This happens to be where we're at in John chapter 14. But we enter this next year with all kinds of expectations and hopes and dreams of, of life and things we're going to do and places we're going to go and things we're going to see and things we're going to accomplish. And, and Jesus, as he's talking to his disciples about something very, very serious, he says, I don't want you to be troubled. You're, you're vexed. You're coming apart. And I don't want you to be troubled, even though there's going to be separation. Romans chapter 5 and verse 12 tells us why it is appointed unto man once to die. And I want to emphasize that idea of an appointment. You're not going to die before God says you can. You know that? I don't always understand why God takes people home when he does. Sometimes he gives people longer life on this earth 
while they're suffering. And I've wondered, Lord, why don't you take them home and, and let the suffering stop? But yet he leaves them. That was one of the things Mr. Words asked me yesterday. And I told him, Mr. Words, you've been a tremendous blessing and encouragement to this church family. You've been a tremendous blessing to me, my family. And there I named some of the others of you in this room who Mr. Words has comforted and encouraged your hearts over and over again. He says, I just want to go home. And the Lord, it's not time yet, Mr. Words. And then on the other hand, on the other end of the spectrum, there are times where God has taken someone home and I've walked away asking the Lord, why did you take him home so early, Lord? There's so much that he could have accomplished. There's so much that he would have done. Lord, he was following you. He was obeying you. He was growing, Lord. Why? See, And here's the thing. Ultimately, I don't know why. But I know this, God has an appointment in place for every one of us in this room. And the fact is that every single one of us are going to, at some point, we're going to, this physical body is going to die. It's a part of life, living and dying. Why is it that every person has an appointment with death? Well, Romans 5.12 says, Wherefore, as by one man, Adam, sin entered into the world, and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. No sin. Perfect place. God said of the tree in that garden, you are not to eat of it. And the day that you eat thereof, you will surely die. And Eve, you remember, partook, and she gave it to Adam and showed him that it was a good thing and he knowing the word of God chose to disobey God's word and death entered into humanity the, the race of humanity and death has been passed on from generation to generation to generation why because sin has been passed on from generation to generation to generation and so there is sin and death it's a part of what we face every year the payment for sin, the Bible says, is death. The wages, the payment for sin is death. But my question might be, and maybe yours is as well, well, I understand why we die, because we're sinners, because there's sin that's corrupted these physical bodies, and so death comes by it. But why was Jesus about to die? It's a good question to ask. And Romans chapter 5 and verse 8 tells us, but God commended, the word means showed, he showed his love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That's why Jesus Christ was about to leave these disciples. That's why he was about to die. After three and a half years of walking and talking with them and teaching them and them being with him all of the time, watching miracle after miracle, amazing events, hearing his words, the words of God taught from the mouth of Jesus. And they're, they're saying, why do you have to leave us? We don't understand what is going on. He's saying, no, I need to go. I'm going to die. There's going to be separation. But why was Jesus dying? Because God loved us. That's why he was dying. John 3.16 says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God sent not his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. And these things are all on Jesus' heart as he's speaking to his disciples. The Bible tells us that our lives are very brief. 
James chapter 4 tells us that in verse 14. He says this, whereas ye know not what shall be on the morrow. I have plans for tomorrow. Did you know that? I've got plans. We had plans for Christmas and New Year's. We had plans. I have plans for tomorrow. I've got plans for this year. But the Bible reminds me, Seth, you don't know what's coming tomorrow. And then he says this, for what is your life? It is even a vapor that appeareth for a little time, then vanisheth away. It appears for a little time. Our lives are like a vapor. And so the question is, are you prepared for death? Are you prepared for death? Am I? So first of all, I notice that death is real. We must not deny it. Secondly, I notice that heaven is real. and We ought to desire it. And I want to talk to you about heaven a little bit here this morning. Look at verses 2 and 3. Jesus says this, In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there ye may be also. Heaven is real. And Jesus, as he reminds them of this idea, okay, I'm leaving, I'm going away, there's going to be a separation, but don't let your heart be troubled. Yes, there's going to be grief. Yes, there's going to be sorrow, and it's fine to grieve. And when we lose a loved one, we ought to grieve. Why? Because there's separation. Um, Paul told the Thessalonian church that we don't grieve as those who have no hope. We have hope, but there's still hurt. There's still ache. It goes so deep. You can't go back and live those lives, uh, live our life again or that person's life again. You can't say the things to that person that you wish you had said. You can't honor them the way you wish you had honored them. You can't say, I love you again to them. You can't hold their hand. You can't look into their eyes. You can't feel the warmth in their hand as you hold it or their embrace. So there is mourning and there is grief when we say goodbye to a loved one. But we do so with great hope because of this truth that Jesus draws their attention to in verse number 2, that Heaven is real. There is a place called heaven. And it's a place that we ought to desire. Paul wrote to the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 9. He said this, But as it is written, I hath not seen, nor ear heard, neither have entered into the heart of man the things which God hath prepared for them that love him. That's an amazing statement. Paul says you, you haven't been able to fully imagine. No one has been able to fully comprehend what God has prepared for those people who love him. We call that place heaven. The psalmist says that at God's right hand are pleasures, pleasure forevermore. Not worldly pleasure, not sensual pleasure, not earthly pleasure, not pleasure that is temporary, not pleasure that satisfies for a little time and wows for a little period of time and then it's empty and it wanes and fades away. No, not that kind of pleasure, but pleasure that is eternal. Pleasure, frankly, that is beyond any kind of pleasure that you or I have ever enjoyed in this life. At his right hand are pleasures forevermore. I think of people even right now that I know and that I miss and that I love 
who I've said goodbye to, who are with the Lord. And you know what? We ought not feel sorry for them. We don't. What are they doing? What are they seeing? Where are they at? These are good questions, but know this. They are not bored. They are not missing this life. They're not remembering the thrills of earth. And heaven is not a downer. It is continual pleasure in a God-honoring way, which because of our fleshliness and our carnality, it's hard for us to comprehend that. Is it possible to have pleasure without it being carnal? I mean, our flesh causes us to think that way. It is God-honoring. It is the ultimate pleasure, and it never ends. I want to go there. And I am going to go there someday. So heaven is real. It's a real place. Heaven is not just some imaginary place that doesn't exist. Heaven is a real place. And the night before Jesus died, we find him telling his closest friends about heaven. His heartbroken friends about heaven. In John 14 and verse 2, he says this again, In my Father's house, notice there, are many mansions. And the word mansions, uh, sometimes we think of places that might be a $9 million estate, you know, with a lot of property. I think that's the kind of mansion. No, the word mansion here means a dwelling place or even kind of has the idea of an apartment or a room. You say, wait a minute, heaven doesn't seem sweeter all of a sudden. We're not city people. We're not New York City residents. And he says this, and I'll explain those mansions in a little bit more detail later on. He says, if it were not so, I would have told you, I go to prepare a place for you. So Jesus is teaching his disciples that heaven is a real place and that he, the Lord Jesus Christ, is going to leave them to prepare a place for those who follow him. And let's talk about the mansions for just a moment. In ancient times, and even in Jesus' day, fathers, a father would have a house. And uh, his son or his children would, would be married. His son would take a wife to himself, and he would come home. And, and, and during the betrothal period, oftentimes the son would come home, and he would add an addition onto his father's house that he would then, upon marriage, bring his bride, his wife, to that mansion. That would be their room, that would be their dwelling place. And if the father, as they often did, had many sons, many children, that house, his house would grow. The father's house would grow. And the emphasis here is not on the furnishings of your dwelling place in heaven. I hope you understand that. The emphasis is that you, as a child of God, are going to be with God. That was the problem the disciples were having. You, Jesus, are leaving us. You're leaving us. Where are you going? We don't know how to get where you're going. We don't know why you're going. Why do you have to go? This was the problem. Separation was the problem. And Jesus was emphasizing to them, where I'm going, I'm going to prepare a place for you so that you can be with me forever. And that's what was on their heart. So the father's house in ancient time would grow larger and larger and the apartments would continue to be built. And our heavenly father's house, heaven, is very 
very large. And that's an understatement. And there are many, many dwelling places. The New Jerusalem, as it's called in the Bible, is the capital city of heaven. Sometimes we think of heaven as only the New Jerusalem. But heaven is more than the New Jerusalem. It's not just the city. Talks about it, the Bible talks about it as the new heaven and the new earth. It's in a sense that heaven to some degree is almost, it seems to be infinite. There's, almost, there's no end, it's not bound by time. But it has a holy city, and it's called, we call it heaven, we call it the New Jerusalem. And in that city, there are many, many rooms, and it's the throne room of God. And the light of that city actually emanates from God himself. The city is lit by the Lord Jesus Christ, by God himself. And there are streets of gold, the purest type of gold. There are walls in that city. You can read about it in Revelation chapter 21. It's a wonderful description of it. Gates on those walls to that city that are open. The inhabitants can come and go. Gates are of pearl, like one pearl per gate. The city is immense. And again, I if your curiosity is pricked at all, you ought to read Revelation 21. Make it your homework tonight. But heaven is more than just the New Jerusalem. Uh, the, the capital city, the New Jerusalem, what we refer to as heaven, the dwelling places, the mansions that Jesus is referring to here in verse number 2, the Bible tells us that heaven is about 1,500 miles cubed. So 1,500 miles wide, on each side, square, and then tall, 1,500 miles. It's, uh, it's almost 1,500 miles from Bay City, Michigan to Miami, Florida. We're talking about one city, the capital city of heaven. It's that long and wide and tall, 1,500 miles. It needs no lighting because God lights it himself. And if you have 1,500 miles cubed, it's over 2 million square miles. It's the capital city of heaven. This place where the dwelling places would be. Uh, in, to give you some sort of reference, a point of reference, New York City is uh, almost 470 square miles. 470 square miles, New York City. Heaven uh, the New Jerusalem will be over 2 million square miles. It's massive. And so some scholars, if you like to do math like this, have estimated that the New Jerusalem could hold a billion people, a billion dwelling places, and we're not ta talking about small rooms. And, and, and please remember that heaven is not just a city. Heaven is infinite. It's, it includes the new heaven and the new earth. And we, In other words, we won't always have to be in town if you're really repulsed by that idea. There won't be heavy traffic. There's no gravity. And we might be somewhere else. Heaven is a real place. Heaven is the dwelling place of God. Heaven is more than just a place. It's, a place. it's the place where God dwells. It's the place where God is. In Matthew 6 and verse 9, Jesus teaching his disciples to pray said this, Our Father, who art in heaven... 
hallowed be thy name. And I emphasize the part where Jesus is saying to pray to his disciples, pray to your father who's in heaven, our father who art, that's where he dwells. It's his dwelling place. It's where his throne is. Heaven is a place where God makes himself known in a very, very special way to his people in a way that you or I, neither you nor I have ever experienced before. And Jesus describes heaven by using three words in verse three. He says, it's where I am, where I am. That was the problem. We just want to be where you are. You can't leave us. You can't leave us here. He said, oh, I'm going to come back for you. You're going to be with me someday. You're going to be, it's where I am. And Jesus Christ wants his believers to be with him. He wants us to be with him in heaven so that we may behold his glory, John 17 tells us. And when we get to heaven, Christ will be the center of attention and we'll see him as he is, 1 John 3 tells us. In fact, when we see Christ in heaven, his appearance will be a constant reminder to us of his great love for us. You'll see the prints of the nails in his hands. Christ's resurrected body still has the scars of his crucifixion. And it will remind us for all of eternity of how much he loved us. How much he loved us in our sinful condition and in his holiness, yet he still loved us. You know, it's one thing to love someone who shows us love. It's another thing to love someone who does not love us, who hates us. And that's what God did. He loved us when we hated him. He sent his son to be crucified by us, to be put to death by us, to take our sins upon his body. He loved us when we did not love him. And so for all of eternity, we'll be reminded of his great love for us. We'll be reminded that he loves us and that his love, it was his love that caused him to take our sin upon his body. It was our uh, his love that caused him to suffer our punishment, and to die our death. And heaven is where Jesus is, and Jesus wants us to be where he is. And for all of us who are saved, the Apostle Paul talked about how he longed for heaven. Isn't it true as we get older, we long for it more? I never understood that when I was young. Sorry, I didn't understand it. Heaven to me, in my uh, teenage mind, was something with clouds and probably some harps and nothing to do. And this is, I'm being transparent, but holiness. I mean, really, how much fun can you have? That was my, that was my mindset. The more I've learned about heaven from the word of God and the more I've learned about the wickedness of this flesh and the sinfulness of this world, the destruction that comes by sin, and the glory that is God, the truth that is him, the purity, true love, genuine, I long for heaven. So at this moment, we are on earth, aren't we? You say, well, I hope I am. And Jesus is in heaven. God is in heaven. It's true that he's with us in spirit. He indwells us by his spirit, but we're not present with him. When the physical body of a born-again believer dies, their soul 
and their spirit are immediately in the presence of the Lord. 2 Corinthians 5 teaches us that. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord immediately. When this physical body passes away, immediately the soul and the spirit of the believer immediately are with God. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, we find that every believer once in heaven will always be with the Lord. It says it this way, and so shall we ever, always, at all times, be with the Lord. And the Bible uses several different names to describe heaven. Heaven is sometimes called a country because it is so vast. Sometimes heaven in the Bible is called a city because of its inhabitants. And other times heaven is called a kingdom because of its ruler and its order. And sometimes heaven is called paradise because of its beauty. And I would ask you this question before we continue. Is heaven your destination? Is heaven your home? Well, I'd like to believe it is, Pastor. That's not a good enough answer. Well, um, well, I want to make some changes in this new year. I don't want to go to that other place, Pastor, so I hope it's heaven. You know, it's possible for people to get some things wrong theologically, but it is not, it is not possible to enter heaven's gates without getting this right, what Jesus is going to say later on in this passage. Do you believe that the Lord Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life? Because he says, no man cometh unto the Father but by me. That's what he says. Now It's a comfort to those of us who are saved because we know him. And so to know him is for heaven to be secured, to be secured for us. That is a wonderful blessing. It is a blessed hope. And for those of you in this room who have said goodbye to a husband or a wife, and your heart broke, and, in some, and for days and months afterward, your heart continued to break over and over again, and the loneliness and the separation. Um, for a person who's saved and whose spouse is born again, for them, um, these truths are a great encouragement. That Jesus went and he prepared a place, and that's where my husband is, that's where my wife is, and that's where I'm going No matter what happens in this life, it's okay because this life is a vapor, but eternity is forever, and I'm going to be with the Lord in heaven. That's wonderful. But for someone who's not saved, what am I here for on this earth anyway? Whose idea was this? What's the purpose? What's the point? There's so much death. There's so much sin. There's so much hate. What's the point? And what happens after it? Maybe maybe when this life ends, that's all there is. That's just it. Put the body in the ground, and that's it. That's what many people want to believe, and there are so many opinions about life. The Bible says, and the Lord Jesus Christ says, that he has gone to prepare a place, a literal place. Separation is real. Death is real. Heaven is real. There's a third truth. Look at the end of verse uh, verse 3, end of verse 3, and notice that Christ's return is real. It's something we ought to expect. Look at verse 3. The latter part, he says, I will come again. I will come again and receive you unto myself that where I am there ye may be also. It seems to be a reference to the second coming of Christ. When he'll set up his earthly kingdom. But before that happens, there's coming a day when the Lord Jesus Christ is going to come. He's going to take all believers who are still living to be with him in heaven. 
And a moment before that happens, the mortal and the physical bodies of born-again believers that have been long buried in the ground are going to be raised from the ground, and all believers are going to be given a new body, a glorified body. I want to read to you about that in 1 Thessalonians. We call it the rapture. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, in verse number 13, it says this. He says, But I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning them which are asleep. In other words, what is going to happen to the physical body of that loved one that we buried? Okay, I'm going to be caught away to be with the Lord, but what about those who have been buried? What about their physical bodies? Are they just going to be left behind? Does God have no use for that physical body? And for those of us who are Bible believers, we know that he loves us so much he was willing to die for us. We, we know that he has a use for our soul. He wants our soul and our spirit to be with him. Um, the Bible, there's a doctrine about this called redemption. And, and the, tr- the truth of redemption is this. Jesus Christ shed his blood, the cost of our soul, our spirit, and even our physical body were, was the blood of Jesus Christ, a very high price to pay. Very high price he paid for you and for me. Does God have any purpose for this physical body after we have died? Well, he says here, I don't want you to be ignorant concerning them which are asleep, that ye sorrow not even as others which have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so them also which sleep in Jesus will God bring with him. For this we say unto you by the word of the Lord, that we which are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord shall not prevent them which are asleep. Because not only are our souls and our spirits important to God, but also our physical bodies, even after they have died. Very interesting. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ... Those physical bodies that are lying in the ground, your loved one that you laid to rest. Sometimes you go to the the cemetery and you stand there and you watch the grass grow in over top. You're remembering that individual. You're remembering the the memories flood you, your mind as you you think of them. Well, God has a purpose for that physical body that you laid to rest. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so shall we ever be with the Lord. Wherefore, comfort one another with these words. It ought to comfort us, and it does. That, that life that we watch that person live is not all there was. That God has something for that person. Their soul and their spirit that are with God now, but also that physical body. All of them, all of them. The tabernacle, this physical body, and their soul and spirit, that person, God has a purpose for, a future in mind for. And he says, I'm going to return. I'm coming back for you. And and I love this, the way that Jesus says it there in verse 3, the middle part. I will come again and receive you unto myself. And his purpose is, is, is stated at the end that where I am, there you may be also. That's his purpose so that they'll be together. There will be a reunion. What I love is certainty. I will come again. 
and I will receive you unto myself. Have you ever doubted your future based upon your behavior? Have you ever doubted that? Have you ever thought, you know what, I think I'm coming up short in living the Christian life I ought to live. I'm not all I ought to be. Have you ever thought that? Anyone here beside me? <laughs> yeah, okay. We all have at times. But do you know that once a person has received Jesus Christ as their personal Savior, our salvation is not our responsibility. It is God's responsibility. And I'm so thankful for that. I'm so thankful that once he saved me, you know what? I make mistakes. I fail him. But he has never failed me, and he will never fail me. He is completely trustworthy. And I love the confidence with, with, with the certainty with which Jesus Christ makes this statement. He had no doubt that these men were going to be with him someday in heaven. He had no doubt that he was going to return and take their physical bodies home to be with him forever someday. He had no doubt about that. He knew the future. And he had no doubt that they were saved. And I love that. Their salvation was not up in the air. It was certain. It was certain. Now think about who he's talking to here. He's talking to Doubting Thomas, as we call him. You remember Thomas? Do you really want to go back to Judea? Remember him saying this? Oh, fine, sure. Well, let's all go with you. We'll all die with you. That's Thomas. I won't believe he's been raised from the dead, except I can thrust my hands into his sides and into his the wounds of his hands and his feet and his side. That's Thomas. I won't believe it unless I can see it. But you know, for all Tom, all Thomas doubts, and all of his struggles with unbelief, Jesus looked at him and he knew this man was saved. He knew that he was going to come back and bring Thomas to be with him someday. I think of the other disciples, and we won't go back and, uh, too much in our study, but you remember what they were struggling with that began this whole thing? Jesus washing their feet. You remember he's telling them, well, I want you to love like this and not stop thinking the way stop thinking the way that you've been thinking. Who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom? Who's going to be on the right hand of God? Who's going to rule and reign? I want to be somebody in your kingdom, Lord. That's, that had been their mindset. And Jesus says, stop it. Love like this. Serve one another. And by the way, I witnessed that this week. On Friday morning, one of you within this congregation, one of our, our, our elderly saints within this church, I watched her clean up someone who was filthy. Selflessly not stopping to love because of something that was unsightly. She just, in a very Christ-like manner, loved a brother in Christ. When family wouldn't even pitch in, a sister, a brother in Christ would love the other one. Love like this. You know, as we, as we embark on this new year, let's not forget that picture of foot washing and serving one another and loving one another, humbling ourselves. But these are the men that Jesus is certain that he's going to come back for. People like you and me, who think more of ourselves than we ought to think, who doubt him sometimes. How about Peter? He's in this room as well. And Jesus is saying, I know I'm coming back for you. I know what you're going to do to me. 
you're going to deny me. You're going to take my name in vain. You're going to tell everybody in my darkest hour that you know nothing about me and you've had nothing to do with me. You're going to forsake me, but, but know this, Peter. I wonder how these words came back to Peter's mind after all this happened. I wonder how he pondered Jesus said he was going to return so that we could be together. So these are the people he's talking to, these arrogant men, these doubting men, these fleshly men. But no matter their personal weaknesses and failures, God had saved them. And no matter our personal weaknesses and failures, if you have trusted the Lord Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, God has saved you and he saved me. Their salvation, our salvation is certain. Was the salvation of these men assured because of them? No. Jesus was confident that these men were going to be with him in his father's house someday because he was confident in himself and what he could do. And he says it there, I go to prepare a place for you. I will come again and I will receive you unto myself that where I am, there ye may be also. I guess a good question for us might be this. Do you believe that Jesus is who he says he is? Do you believe and have you received Jesus Christ as your personal Savior? Because faith in Christ is the key to salvation. That's how we started it. Let not your hearts be troubled. Ye believe in God. Believe also in me. You believe in God, you say. Believe in me. Trust in me. There's one last truth and we'll be done. Death is real. Heaven is real. Christ's return is real. And finally, salvation is real. And you, we ought to receive it. Look at verses 5 and 6. He says it this way. Thomas saith unto him, Lord, we know not whither thou goest. Have you ever disagreed with God? His disciples did that. We know not whither thou goest, and how can we know the way? And Jesus saith unto him, I am the way, the truth, and the light. No man cometh unto the Father but by you know, if your loved one is in heaven today, they are there because they received Jesus as their personal Savior. They believed upon him. And when they received him, they received life eternal. I'm not sure of the, of the purity of the motivation that says, you know what, I, I'm, I'm willing to try God out. I'll try him out. I'll, I'll pray a prayer in hopes of seeing my loved one again. I'm not sure what kind of sincerity that prayer would be. Full of doubt and unbelief. God, if you're really there, no, no. When you come to the conclusion in your heart, based upon the word of God that you have heard, and what you've seen in your loved ones who have passed on before you, how they loved God and how God was changing them and how they were believing this book and what it teaches. When you come to the point in your life that you believe that Jesus is who he says, who he said he was, who he says he is, you believe that you're a sinner and that Jesus Christ is the son of God and he loved you and took your place and died your death and suffered for your sins so that you could be forgiven, so that I could be forgiven. That's salvation. 
Salvation is real. You know, solutions to human problems are never found in skepticism. Well, I don't know about that. I don't know about that. Nothing's ever been accomplished in skepticism. I don't believe that's going to work. And maybe you're like that. Maybe that's your personality. Maybe you're an optimist. But nothing's ever been accomplished uh, for humanity with a, a skeptic, a, a, a mindset of, of the skeptic. And Thomas says here, he's a bit of a skeptic. He says, we don't know the way. I don't know how this is going to work. This is never going to work. You're going somewhere, and I don't know how to get there. You say we're going to see each other again. I don't believe it. I don't know where you're going, and I don't know how to get there. A bit of a skeptic. Now, they understood that Jesus was about to leave them, and they were de- they were devastated by it. Their grief was so profound. And again, I'm glad Thomas asked, because the answer is so incredibly important. So how can we go and be where the Lord Jesus Christ is? How can a person go to heaven? That's the question. How can we be ready for Jesus Christ's return? How how can we know the way? Not everybody knows the way to heaven. Not everybody is on their way to heaven. Proverbs chapter 16 and verse 25 says this, There is a way that seemeth right unto a man, but the end thereof are the ways of death. There are many people who say, I've found the way. I'm on the right path. There's a lot of confidence, but Proverbs says their confidence is misplaced. They actually don't know the way. Do you remember the religious leaders of Israel who refused to believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ? Do you remember why they they refused to believe upon Jesus? Because they were so insistent upon their own way. They were so much insisting upon their own way that they rejected Jesus. They refused to believe in him. Jesus said that they could not come where he was going. Do you remember that? It was in chapter 8. Jesus says this, then said Jesus again to them, I go my way and ye shall seek me and shall die in your sins. Whither I go, ye cannot come. Then said the Jews, the religious leaders, will he kill himself? Is he going to commit suicide? Because he saith, whither I go, ye cannot come. He said unto them, ye are from beneath. I am from above. Ye are of this world. I am not of this world. And then he says this, I said therefore unto you that ye shall die in your sins If ye believe not that I am he, ye shall die in your sins. I got to tell you, when I, when I, I don't know what God has for Mr. Wirtz. I don't know if he's going to take him home to be with him this weekend or this week or maybe for years from now. Maybe he's going to revive his physical body and he'll live for years and will enjoy his fellowship. But you know what? When I'm, when I'm sitting there next to someone who is near death, My heart is greatly comforted when I know that that person is a child of God and they have believed upon the Lord Jesus Christ and that they they are a possessor of everlasting life. No matter how this life has been lived, no matter the length of life, whether it's only a teenager or whether it's someone in their midlife or whether it's someone who's lived a full, a long life, as we would say it, when, when, when the appointed time of death comes to a human being, my heart is encouraged when I know this person is a child of God. And as wonderful as this life has been for them, or maybe as miserable as this life has been for them, everything is about to change. They are going to be with the Lord. And at his right hand, there are pleasures forevermore. Forever. 
That is a beautiful, that is a wonderful hope. By the way, that's not a hope that most of the world has. You know, the way to heaven is not found in religion. It's not found in, in a church. It's not found in a nonprofit organization. The way to heaven is not found in our own righteousness. You know, I'll just be better. It's not, how, it's not found in our own self-discipline. It's not found in how much we give to charity or in our work ethic. It's not found. Heaven is not found. The way to heaven is not found in our own way. Look again at verse number 6 in John 14, verse 6. Jesus saith unto him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. So how is a person, how does a person get to heaven? Well, you get to heaven by believing upon the Lord Jesus Christ, by receiving him as your Savior. Christ is the only way. He is the means by which we reach the Father. We live in a wicked world, but God has a wonderful plan and a place prepared for us. How do we get there? There seems to be such an immense gulf between the present failures of mankind, the wickedness of this world, and God's design for us, His future for us, a place called heaven. I mean, how do we get there? It seems like such a long trip. How do we go from such a wicked state a wicked place to a perfect place, a holy place. How do we get there? You know, Thomas sees the obstacles of being where God is, and he's despairing. I can't get there. I don't know how to get there is what he's saying. So Jesus says that I am the way. He, Jesus Christ, is the way. He is the living way by which mankind is brought to God. And without the way, without Jesus Christ, no one goes to heaven. The truth, he says, I am the truth. And the truth, truth, by the way, is I think the scarcest commodity on this planet. Maybe it's readily available, but just not received. Truth is not a set of rules. Truth is not, well, it's what I believe, but, or it's what you believe. It's not opinions. Truth is not opinions. Well, this is what I think. No. The truth is found in a person. The truth is found in Jesus. And he says it here, I am the truth. Truth. He taught it. He lived it. He was the truth and he is the truth. And so many people in our day are trying to find the truth. I want to know the truth. I just want to know the truth. Jesus is the truth. He's the way to heaven. He is the truth that illuminates the way to heaven. And finally, he says, I am the life. And this is all an answer to Thomas' unbelief. I don't know where you're going. I don't know how to get there. Just Let's just face it. Just call it what it is. We're never going to see each other ever again. There's no hope. Go ahead and go. And I'm just going to stay here. Jesus says, no, no, Thomas. You know the way. You know the way. And he says, I am the way. I am the truth, and I am the life. You know, there are some in this room here this morning, in many of our hearts, we, we, have, we know him as the way, the truth, and the life. We know him as our personal Savior. He has saved us from death and hell and from sin today. And our hearts rejoice in that. He is the truth. He is the life. And we have life. He has taken us from dead men and made us alive. And maybe there are some in this room this morning, and you say, you know what? I don't know how to get to heaven. 
I'm telling you this morning, you do. His name is Jesus. His name is Jesus. He came to save you, to save me from our sin. He is life. So the question is, have you received him? In Acts 4, when the, when the Apostle Peter preached on the day of Pentecost, he said, Neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. He is the only one who can save us. In John 1, in verse 12, John had written, But as many as received him, Jesus, to them, the receivers of Jesus, gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. Do you believe on his name? He is love. He is mercy and grace. He is truth. He is long-suffering. He is gentle and meek and kind. He is so gracious. He suffers long with you and me, but he is the only way. And in that sense, heaven is very exclusive. Not because of our works of righteousness, which are so unrighteous, but because of Jesus He is the only way. And it is not a broad way. You come your way and I'll come my way and we'll all get to heaven. That's not what the Bible says. Jesus says here, the way is very narrow. The way is Jesus Christ. And to believe upon him and to receive him is to admit, you know what? I cannot get to heaven by myself. I can never be good enough. I can never do enough right. I can never be disciplined enough. But Jesus Christ paid the price. He paid my admission to heaven. And if I will believe upon him and trust in him, I will go to heaven for all of eternity. That's a long time. I want you to take your hymnals, if you would.